For today's Latelier Balmain podcast, we're going to be talking about an incredible woman, a woman who has deep connections to the House of Balmain, Josephine Baker. For those who already know a little bit about Josephine Baker, you'll know that adjectives like heroic, inspiring, fascinating are typically associated with her and her life, and well, for very good reasons. Because basically, her life is like an unbelievable movie plot. Baker was born into extreme poverty in East St. Louis, Missouri, at the very beginning of the previous century. She was a black woman who was born into what had once been a slave state, only 41 years after the Civil War had ended. In fact, she was raised in part by her grandmother, who had previously been a slave. And for those who know even the slightest bit about American history at the beginning of the 20th century, you won't be surprised to hear that Baker faced a very tough life from day one. After all, this was a time of Jim Crow, state-enforced codified racial discrimination, segregation, and race riots. And somehow, Baker managed to escape. By her own determination, she transformed herself into the very first global American superstar. She escaped the life that she seemed destined to live, and she became the glamorous toast of Europe, living extravagantly in Paris, starring in movies, dancing on the stages of the most important theaters, and releasing a string of musical hits, some of which are now considered classic French songs. She was also a dedicated war hero, helping the French resistance forces battle the Nazis by working as a spy during World War II. In later years, she joined another battle, fighting for American civil rights. And along the way, there were many lovers, several victories, and quite a few tragedies. And the reason we're talking about Baker today in this podcast, well, she was an important figure for the House of Balmain. She served as a muse for Pierre Balmain, who dressed her for several of her most important musical tours and concerts. I've talked about Josephine Baker with the Vogue writer Lynn Yeager several times in the past, since Lynn is very passionate about the life of Josephine Baker. So I'm very, very happy that today Lynn has agreed to take our call, and she's ready to school us all a little bit about Josephine Baker and what she represents. J'ai deux amours, mon père est Paris, parle toujours, mon corps est ravi. Manhattan est belle, mais c'est quoi bon Ce qui mène en sorcelle, c'est Paris, c'est Paris tout entier. Hello, I'm John Gilligan. On today's L'Atelier Balmain podcast, we'll be speaking with Vogue writer Lynn Yeager about her hero, Josephine Baker. I am Olivier Roustin. Welcome to my world. Welcome to my world. Bienvenue à L'Atelier Balmain. Bienvenue à L'Atelier Balmain. Hey, Lynn, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for taking the time. I know it's really early <laughs> over there yeah, in New York. Yeah, 10.30 for... in the morning. That's early for oh. me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks for working around our timetable. And I'm glad we have a chance finally, and I know we've been talking about this for a long time, to talk about one of your heroes, Josephine Baker. Because I know the last time we spoke when you were in Paris, you said you had a lot of good stories to share. I love Josephine Baker, and I love the story of Josephine Baker. She's amazing, and I'm always happy to talk about her. We could just talk about her forever. You know, <laughs> I love these self-invented women who just who spring from nothing and change the world. So she's an amazing person. So then, 
bringing this into today's conversation, speaking of other musical trailblazers of our time. So Seb and I are here recording at the Balmont studio and things are pretty buzzing still and hectic still around us because the entire team is following up on their recent big announcement of the future collaboration between Balmain and Beyonce. And Beyonce, for all of you who might have been living in a cave for the past couple of weeks, recently announced that she had partnered with Olivia Ristong and worked for half a year on a series of couture gowns. And each of the gowns was inspired by one of the songs from Beyonce's Renaissance album. And for those who haven't seen the designs, by the time this episode airs, you can see them on the latest issue of French Vogue, which just came out, I think, last week, the one with Beyonce on the cover wearing one of those designs. And we'll also have the collection's photos posted on the web pages as well. And when you look at these new cultural designs, you can definitely see the influence of Olivia Roustang's recent strong collections for fall 2023 men and women. And I also just wanted to say that I always feel like like Olivia is really friends with the people that he works with. Hmm, I always feel yeah. like they're really hanging out and having drinks. I don't know if it's true, but that's my fantasy. <laughs> um, it's easy to see how uh, Beyonce and Olivier built upon that recent runway focus on the couture codes of Balmain, especially that distinctive new French style silhouette for this couture collab. But what makes this couture collection so interesting to me is to see how each of the designs channel one of the specific songs in Beyonce's incredible Renaissance album. It really is a collection that blends the two artists' outlooks, which makes sense since Beyonce and Olivia Roustang have often teamed up on clothing designs. He's overseen outfits for various tours of Beyonce over the years, and of course there was 2018's Coachella, something I never wanted to go to, by the way. Doesn't it sound <laughs> nightmarish? Admit it, everybody. It's, it's tough. <laughs> where Olivier made what must have been a hand, uh, hundreds of outfits for Beyonce, her other guests and singers, the musicians, the marching bands, everyone. I have a headache just thinking about it. <laughs> so Beyonce spoke a lot about that long history of collaborations between Olivier and her during her speech at the show that marked Olivier Roustan's 10th anniversary at Balmain. And here's a little uh, excerpt from her speech. You, your team, your runways, your campaigns, they all speak of that new, fresh, audacious, empowering outlook and your deep abiding convictions. And of course, well, there's the clothes. We have to talk about the clothes. We got to get into the clothes. Does anyone have any idea how many times I've worn a special Beaumont creation? There have been so many events and so many beautiful moments. I've worn one-of-a-kind Beaumont in arenas, in stadiums, all across the globe, in videos shot inside the world's finest museum and during some very important personal moments as well. For example, last fall when I cast my Texas Ballet for Change. And maybe you remember... There was also two very special weeks at Coachella. At Coachella, we showed the world what's possible when two perfectionists get together. Yes, let's remember, we are both Virgos. <laughs> My team, your team, you, me, we worked like mad to make every one of those hundreds of looks exactly right for those special concerts, those special weekends. And yes, we did it. You did it. You helped me make my musical statement, and you've helped me amplify my message, and your designs have made me feel 
powerful. Thank you, Olivier. It seems so right that tonight you celebrate your decade with this unique runway concert moment. You and I both know that fashion and music, when combined together, can somehow make each other so much stronger. And I know that this house has an incredible history of partnering with great artists of the time. Pierre Beaumont, of course, dressed so many musical icons. And he dressed a legend, Josephine Baker, someone who both France and America celebrate for her amazing talent, joy, beauty, and her amazing courage. I love that today you continue to build upon that house heritage. Your love for music merges so perfectly with Balmain's long history of love for musicians, for music, for America, and for change. So we'll soon be speaking to Olivier Song about his latest collection with Beyonce. But since we have a chance to finally talk to Lynn now, we thought this would be the perfect moment to finally create our long-delayed episode about Josephine Baker. So for over the past couple of weeks, Lynn and I have been emailing each other with a bunch of links for videos and iconic images of Josephine Baker. And since today's podcast, we'll be referencing many of those. Before we get into it, I wanted to point out to everyone listening that this episode's webpage will be built around those same images and those same videos. So as you listen to Lynn's history lesson on Josephine, you can always click to the webpage and view the photos and videos that she's talking to about us as she walks through the history of Josephine Baker. So let's actually begin with the most recently dated clip. It's from two years ago. It was on French national television when they carried a very important historical moment. It was the moment when Josephine Baker was being induced into the Pantheon. Inducted, not induced, inducted. Uh, <laughs> that's true. She's not having a baby. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a moment that uh, Josephine Baker was inducted into the Pantheon. So Lynn, let's talk about that video of her entrance into that very important site. Okay, I'm thinking maybe we need to back up a little. We have some Americans listening over here. We need to give a little <laughs> background to any non-French listeners before we begin the discussion. First of all, the Pantheon? Okay, Isn't that yeah. in Rome? <laughs> Very good point. Very good point. So I think tourists already know that the Pantheon is an important part of the Paris skyline. But is it actually so much more when you think about its historic value, its importance historically for the French nation? It's set high on a hill in the 5th arrondissement. It's near the Luxembourg Gardens. And when it was begun in 1758, it was intended to be a church in honor of St. Genevieve, who is the patron saint of Paris. It was commissioned originally by the King Louis XV and followed a neoclassical pattern that, as you can see, was very much influenced by the look of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome at the Vatican. And it was finished just in time for the French Revolution. Well, you know, history plays <laughs> tricks. That wasn't such a good time for kings and churches, if I remember my history. Very good, very good, very true. And that's why in 1791, the National Assembly voted to transform the church into a mausoleum for the remains of distinguished French citizens. And the it was all based on the idea of actual the first pantheon in Rome, which had been used that way since the 1600s. 
So over the years, many of the most important and inspiring statesmen, intellects, artists, and heroes of France have been brought into the Pantheon and usually honored by the president of France and, and being part of a very impressive state ceremony. And among the people buried inside the Pantheon are important literary figures like Victor Hugo, philosophers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, um, inventors like Louis Braille, who invented the Braille alphabet for blind people, statesmen like Jean Monnet, who established the forerunner of the European Union, scientists like the Nobel laureates Pierre and Marie Curie. And so since, since 1790, there's been about 80 very famous French heroes who have preceded Josephine Baker into the Pantheon. Very few of them were foreign-born, and only a very small handful have been women. And so we cut to 2021, when Josephine Baker became the first black woman, the first American-born French citizen, and the first entertainer to receive that extreme honor of being inducted (laughs) into the Pantheon. And... um, those who look at the video will agree with Lynn and me when we say that ceremony was pretty impressive. It was carried out and it was live on French television. And we watched this video and I had seen it live on TV and it's pretty moving to watch it. We'll include a link to the English language version of that induction ceremony on the podcast page. Basically, to try to sum that video up, what we saw started with French Air Force officers carrying Josephine Baker's cenotaph down a four-lane long red carpet covering the streets that run from Luxembourg Gardens up to the entrance of the Pantheon. Okay, so I'm going to interrupt here now. (laughs) Now it's my turn to say we need to back up because really a cenotaph, (laughs) could we... (laughs) Could you <laughs> could you define a centotaph? Well, instead of her remains, the coffin was filled with handfuls of soil from the most important American and French locations of Josephine Baker's life. And I've been told that the word for that is centotaph. We don't yeah, say yeah. that in America that I'm aware of. Her actual, maybe, I don't think we do this either. Her actual remains are still in the graveyard in Monaco where she was buried in 1975. Okay, okay. So on top of that centotaph that we saw in the video... <laughs> The video showed it was covered by a French flag, along with some of the most important medals that can be awarded in France for military heroes. Because besides being one of the most famous entertainers of the 20th century, Josephine Baker was also a French war hero. So we watched the officers slowly bring her up the street, pausing at different images and monuments that were set up along the way to highlight her history, with different songs that are closely associated with her and her life also being sung and performed at different stops. The tribute ceremony started with Baker's song, Ma Voilà Paris, Paris I'm Back. A French army choir sang the French resistance anthem, which got a lot of applause from the public. And of course, her signature song, Je deux amours, I have two loves, was a key part of the ceremony. <laughs> and so during the same time, if you watch the video, all along the avenues, there were large images of Baker that were being projected onto the street and onto the facade of the Pantheon. And when she was finally brought in and she was rested inside the central space inside the Pantheon, it was time for President Macron's speech. And Macron gave a pretty moving speech. He called her, and I quote, 
a war hero, fighter, dancer, singer, a black woman who defended black people, but more than anything, a woman defending humanity. American and French, Josephine Baker fought so many battles with lightness, freedom, and joy. And you know, I love that he added, Josephine Baker, you're entering into the Pantheon because although you were born American, there is no greater French person than you. Mm. Okay. Mm. Uh, maybe we should also say that Macron probably had his own reasons for wanting to bring Josephine Baker into the Pantheon in a very public way. Like, when you're up for re-election, oh, that was a long time ago, <laughs> and you assume you'll be running against a far-right candidate, oh, so long ago, whose vision for France probably doesn't include honoring immigrants, especially black immigrants. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you're definitely not wrong here. But whatever his motivations might have been, it was definitely a moving ceremony. And also, I thought it was important we start the show today talking about that moment. Because whenever we talk about Josephine Baker, we also talk about a sexy young girl who moved around the Paris stage wearing basically nothing. And, and by the way, we are definitely going to be talking about that today, right? Oh, sure. I think it's important <laughs> that we begin by acknowledging that we show much more than that girl in a banana skirt. I mean, she's in the Pantheon. That's true. It's true. And I love that we're starting out with this little tease that she's a war hero. So people have a reason to hang around to hear the whole story. Okay, so I'm starting to realize that we have a whole lot to cover in what we were hoping was going to be a short episode. <laughs> so maybe now we should jump back to the beginning. Lynn, where, what do you think? Where do we start? I'm going to tell you about her now. Her early days were tough. In 1906, Frida Josephine McDonald was born in St. Louis, Missouri. She was the daughter of a teenage mother, and there's more than a few historians who think that her father was a white man. Josephine was mostly raised by her grandmother, a woman who had been born into slavery. Mm-hmm. It shows you how recently slavery really was. Mm-hmm. As a very poor young girl, she worked as a domestic, and she later told some pretty horrible stories about the mistreatment that she had been forced to suffer. There are also stories about her having to live on the street in the St. Louis slums, sleeping in cardboard shelters and scrounging for food in garbage cans while she earned small change by dancing on a street corner. Mm -hmm. She also would later tell how at the age of 11 she witnessed the terrifying and notorious race riots in St. Louis, with gangs of whites roaming the streets, murdering inhabitants and setting fire to buildings. One day she wrote, I realized that I was living in a country where I was afraid to be black. It was a country only for whites, not for blacks. Hmm. So it's not at all that hard to understand why she wanted to get the hell out of there. Hmm. It was definitely not the type of beginning that you'd expect for someone who ends up being inducted into the Pantheon. By age 13, she was married, but at 14, she left Willie Wells, her first husband, and her hometown to go north with a vaudeville troupe. By 1920, she was married again to a train porter named William Baker, and she was starting to do well on the black vaudeville circuit as a chorus girl who had a natural flair for comedy, and she knew how to get noticed. She would work to constantly upstage the other chorus girls, doing gyrations with her legs, playfully crossing her eyes, constantly grinning and always playing the clown. She knew even then how to grab and keep the crowd's attention. As she grew in popularity, she began to get work in Harlem nightclubs. Okay, so Lynn, I'm looking at this poster that we've seen before for a Paris show called La Revue Negra at the Champs-Élysées Music Hall. So what is the story behind that? Well, this is where everything began to change for Josephine. It's 1925, and an American socialite named Caroline Dudley had completely embraced Harlem as, and I quote, 
a land of banjos, pianos, <laughs> and the mechanical Victrola gramophone radio morning, noon, and night. She wanted to bring that distinctive musical spirit to Paris in the form of an all-black review that she called La Revue Negra. She's not the only socialite in America. She's not the only white lady in America who's captivated by the raw brilliance of the black community. Just saying. Mm, yeah. Okay, so now Josephine has been brought over from New York for the show then, right? Yep, now she's in Paris and she's smart. Like I said, her vaudeville days had drilled into her to get, to get a crowd's attention and the French audiences could not get enough of her. She quickly became a sensation, the toast of Paris, especially mm. when she began starring in her own sexy, joyous act during another musical review in 1926 at the Folies so this is where her glory days in Paris all start. Yep. So Baker eventually began performing La Dante Sauvage at the Théâtre du Champs-Élysées. She was exuberantly dancing during the Charleston, wearing only bracelets, a beaded necklace, and a skirt made of feathers. Her famous banana skirt came later. Her Dante Sauvage definitely conveyed a kind of liberty that she definitely would never have gotten away with back home. At the Champs-Élysées Theatre, where the stage was set up to look like a nightclub in Harlem, with drums steadily beating in the background, Josephine Baker, wearing only a ring of feathers, would appear on stage on the back of a large, naked black hunter. Mm -hmm. The hunter flips her into a cartwheel so that she lands onto the floor, and once there, she launches into a joyous, erotic dance called Le Pas de Deux de Sauvage. It shocked and enraptured okay, so, the Parisian audience. Uh, okay, we're not in St. Louis anymore, and even we're not even in the 1920s Harlem. And Baker, like you said, is the toast of the town. And we know that Cocteau, Hemingway, and Picasso all were inspired by her beauty and her singular spirit. But still, when we look at these posters and the, and the, hear that is kind of description that you just gave and reflect on the language used, I mean, the casting of Baker as the Black Venus and someone who is basically a, a naked savage living deep in the jungle, I mean... <laughs> It's not something that makes you 100% comfortable today, right? Uh, no, not really. Okay, and let's remember, literally this was 100 years ago. Mm. France may not have been the American South, but it was also not some sort of perfect panacea. Mm -hmm. Hello? Europe was busy <laughs> exploiting its African colonies at this time, and a lot of the plot lines of Josephine Baker's acts were built upon this time period's colonial mindset. And this was all happening just a few years after World War I ended, and people were looking for new models to embrace, since Europe's civilization, quote-unquote, had proved to be lacking. So just as Picasso and the Cubists began embracing the distinctive beauty of African masks, French culture was enthralled with what was defined as the pure energy of primitive Africa. Hmm. And maybe you can't hear it in this podcast, but I'm definitely adding quotation marks and eye rolls <laughs> worthy of Josephine Baker to those phrases. So it's interesting. So I think this is definitely the time to cut to some of the intellectual takes that we've been reading this week about Josephine Baker. Because I was thinking, and I know it might be a little bit boring, but I, th I was thinking as we touched upon some of the more interesting opinions that we've been hearing about this question, and when the intellectuals talk about the importance of Josephine Baker for French culture. So there's a, one French intellectual, Pop Nidea, who is the son of Senegalese immigrants, and he's also the president of France's minister for education, 
So besides being a very well-respected historian, he specializes in black studies. And Nadea has had, had some very interesting takes on this issue. In 2019, he had an interview on France Culture Radio, and he explained that he believed that Josephine Baker had actually worked to take control of the stereotypes that were part of her acts, and she was dismissing and deriding them at the same time that she was exaggerating them. He points out that one of her most popular songs was entitled, If I Were White, and she ended pointedly with the phrase, do I need to be white to please you more? And then Nadia noted, and I quote, it's the French colonial imagery that she is capturing and playing with. There's a whole lot of winks and a whole lot of distance because Josephine Baker was not someone who was going to be fooled. And Nadia also underlines the importance for all of us to remember just how Baker must have felt when she arrived in France. In a 2021 interview with the AP, he pointed out that her new life in Paris allowed for radical changes for Baker. And I quote, when she arrived, she was first surprised, like so many African-Americans who settled in Paris at the same time. There was an absence of institutional racism. There was no segregation. There was no lynching. And there was the possibility to sit in a cafe and be served by a white waiter. The possibility to talk to white people, to have a romance with white people. That doesn't mean that racism did not exist in France, but French racism was often a more subtle and, and it was not nearly as brutal as the American forms of racism. And maybe the best argument to think about when discussing Josephine Baker and outdated, outdated racial attitudes and prejudice is to look at who really didn't like what Josephine Baker was doing on stage hmm. because, which will surprise no one, there was a whole bunch of racists who just couldn't stand seeing a black woman controlling the stage. Hmm. There were conservative newspapers and intellectuals who denounced Baker as some sort of dangerous black peril and a clear sign of modern Europe's dangerous modern degeneration. And of course, a whole lot of the conservative and fascist hatred of Baker was tied up in the rejection of jazz music as the music of American blacks that had to be rejected. In the Nazi exhibition Degenerate Music from 1938, Baker was one of the denounced artists. Uh -huh. But all that hate didn't stop Josephine Baker. She was the star of the moment, and she started to cash in. It wasn't just selling out the dance halls with her amazing dances. She became a whole industry. Parisians started buying Josephine Baker dolls, Baker fixed pomade in order to get that short, slick back hmm. look. Black Baker perfumed toothpaste and copies of Josephine Baker's iconic banana costume. And I just want to hmm. say, as an inveterate flea market visitor in Paris of many decades, I have never seen any of this stuff. Okay? <laughs> so if anybody can turn up this stuff, I want to see it. I want to see the doll. I've seen pictures of this stuff, but I've never hmm. seen this stuff in the flesh. Just saying. Hmm. Cool. So I've always wondered... Um, Lynn, how did Josephine Baker, the famous, beautiful young dancer with that banana skirt, how did she evolve into the movie star and the popular music star in France? How did, how did, what made that transition for Josephine Baker? Well, after being a sensation in Paris, she left on a two-year tour and she made it clear to all that the days of the banana skirt needed to be over. The Charleston, the bananas, that's all over now, you see, she declared in an interview in 1929. 
When she returned to Paris and during the early 30s, she expanded her shows at the Casino de Paris to include new vocal numbers and comedic sketches, and she began to be compared to the other stars of the French music hall, like Miss Dinguette. Hmm. She definitely worked on her craft, adding new steps to her repertory and strengthening her voice for new jazz operetta and dancehall numbers. There were more than a few racist explanations given for this transition and her evolution. For example, Le Figaro saw her transportation as a good example of, quote, the improvements that can be possible in the intellectual shaping of the black race by European Ooh. civilization. Uh, close quotes and silent vomit noises from Lynn over <laughs> here in America. But unfortunately, the truth is, although she was becoming a big star, most of her hit songs and her starring film roles still relied on the same narrative of primitive to Parisian, which the French audiences never seemed to tire of. She was definitely typecast. I mean, she did sing opera at one of Paris's most important theaters, but it was as the title character, a young Guadalupian in Offenbach's La Creole. By the way, her signature song, J'ai deux amours, is a classic and everyone loves it, but the words are about an exotic foreigner from faraway lands who becomes profoundly attached to her new love, Paris. Isn't that me, though? Anyway. Um, <laughs> excuse me. And so, Hello? That- <laughs> and so with all this fame and fortune and success and transition in France and across Europe, did she finally arrive to become a star in the States? Uh-uh. Not at all. Mm. She went back to the Ziegfeld Follies on Broadway in 1936. It didn't do well, and the press was definitely not nice to her. Time magazine dismissed her as a Negro wench, ugh, mm. whose dancing and singing might be topped anywhere outside Paris. After that disaster, she returned to France, married, and became a French citizen. So what about this uh, movie career of hers? Okay, I just want to say I've seen these movies, and they're really cute. So they're they? probably on YouTube. If anybody, yeah, mm. if anybody wants to watch them, her her star power really shines through in these movies. Okay, she was actually the first African American to star in a major motion picture release. In fact, she probably could be considered the world's first black superstar. Her films were very popular in France, and they often did well across Europe. Her first film was Siren of the Tropics in 1927, a silent film where she was cast as Pepe Two, who lived in the French West Indies and fell in love with a Frenchman. But, you know, a silent Josephine Baker, who needs that? She <laughs> made two other films in the 30s. These are better, Zuzu and Princess Tam Tam, both star vehicles for her. Her last movie was Fosse Alert, which finished filming uh, right after the war had begun. Okay, here we go. Okay, so we're in the war. So we're in the war years. France is occupied. And just like all the other stars of the moment, Josephine Baker, I assume, is going to have to make choices, decide which way to go. Some people didn't make the right choice. You know, history is a <laughs> cruel master. We can look back. But she made the right choice right away. She had been mm. married and divorced to a French Jewish husband, and she had already joined the anti-racist organization LICRA, the French International League Against Racism and Anti-Semitism, maybe sort of a French version of the NAACP. Mm. It was pretty clear that she and the Nazis were not going to be getting along. Remember that they had denounced her as degenerate before the war and had declared her to be a black devil. Mm. When the Nazis occupied Paris in 1940, she fled, moving to the Chateau de Milan in the south of France, where she took in other refugees and helped arrange visas for them. And so when did all this war heroism begin for Josephine Baker? 
Jack Abti, head of the Deuxième Bureau, the French military intelligence service, recruited Baker to join the resistance and help the free French forces. Her high profile gave her access to diplomatic parties and the Italian embassy, and her friendship with Miki Sawada, the wife of the Japanese ambassador to France, also got her through a lot of doors without any problems. Hmm. She would work to charm people as she always had, using the conversations to collect information on Vichy policies and German troop movements, jotting down whatever she learned on notes that she would pin to her underwear. She knew she was too famous for anyone to think of strip-searching her. Oh, yeah. She also managed to smuggle documents and information to French spies by writing information in invisible ink on her sheet music. And let me just say how terrifying and how this must have been and how brave she was to do this. this is no, it's really incredible. It sounds stuff. like such a great story. Yeah, like a movie. Yes, yeah. so, so terrifying. Oh, no, as an entertainer, she was allowed to move around Europe. In 1941, she and her entourage went on tour through Spain to Lisbon and then on to Morocco, collecting information at the many parties she was invited to. She smuggled dozens of classified documents to British intelligence about German airfields, harbors, and troop concentrations in the west coast of France. In Morocco, after a miscarriage, she became so ill with an infection that she had to have a hysterectomy. She then developed peritonitis and sepsis. Once she recovered, she began touring to entertain British, French, and American soldiers in North Africa, but she refused to perform for mm. segregated troops. So I guess what you just went through, I guess that totally explains all the military honors that we were seeing, all those medals we were seeing at the ceremony at the Pantheon. Along with the chorus singing the Chant des Partisans, the French resistance yeah. anthem. Those medals were impressive on, on top of that central path. <laughs> <laughs> After the war, Baker was awarded the Resistance Medal by the French Committee of National Liberation, the Croix de Guerre by the French military, and she was named the Chevalier of the Légion d'Honneur by uh, no less than General Charles de Gaulle. Wow, wow. So, Lynn, I'm guessing that the war's over after all those awards. I'm guessing that once you're a war hero getting a medal from Charles de Gaulle, you're not about to go back to singing songs about being a tropical beauty on a desert island. No way. <laughs> Critics said that she had a new gravitas after the war. And of course, after her wartime heroism, she was loved even more than before. She returned to all the big clubs in Paris. And as we can see from the archives, this is when Pierre Balmain began dressing her for her performances. She's got a really cute, chic little physique up until the end also. She's got a really yes. cute little figure, just saying. No, the, um, her figure's amazing the, throughout, yeah. Amazing, amazing. Yeah, There are amazing. some great photos of Pierre Balmain dressing her, as well as, as her acting in the gowns he created for her. We'll put all those images on the webpage for everybody who wants to see. And Josephine decided to give the USA another chance after the war as well. She was invited to perform in Miami, and she forced the clubs that wanted her to desegregate, which was a pretty big deal in the early 1950s. She ended up having a triumphant tour and was even honored as the NAACP's Woman of the Year with a ceremonial parade held for her in Harlem. Hmm. But that success didn't last. There was a terrible moment for Josephine Baker at the Store Club, which was one of New York's most celebrated places of, at the time. There had been an unwritten policy of discouraging black customers, and it appeared that they refused to wait on Josephine Baker when she went there in October 1951. She arrived with her French friends for dinner after her show at the Roxy. The owner, Sherman Billingsley, supposedly was outraged that she got inside the place, demanding to a waiter who let her in. Hmm. Once he saw that she'd been seated, the restaurant decided not to bring her the food that she had ordered. 
Hmm. Once she realized what was happening, Baker went to the phone booth to call her lawyer, Walter White, who was the executive uh, secretary of the NAACP. And she also called Deputy Police Commissioner Billy Rowe about being denied service. Hmm. After those phone calls were placed, a waiter rushed over to the table and finally brought out her steak. But Baker refused to eat it, saying, I have no intention of suffering deliberate humiliation without striking back. Baker also scolded the famous columnist Walter Winchell, an old ally of hers, who was also seated at the store club at the same time, for not rising to her defense. Winchell didn't take that well. He responded swiftly with a series of harsh newspaper columns about Baker, including accusing her of being someone with communist sympathies, which was a pretty serious charge at that time. And Winchell's vendetta against Baker seems to have had exactly the effect he wanted it to have. Baker's work quickly dried up in America, and she returned to France, where she remained very popular. Seated next to Josephine Baker at the store club was another famous person, Grace Kelly, who was a rising star in Hollywood, but not as well known as Josephine at that time. When she saw what was happening, she objected to Billingsley discrimination and rose to leave the restaurant in protest with Baker. Hmm. This was the beginning of a long and important friendship between the two women. The NAACP picketed the store club after the incident, calling for its liquor and cabaret licenses to be revoked because of racial bias. But the club's license remained intact. Of course, of course. So it looks like Josephine Baker was just never going to make it in the States, I guess, right? No, actually, she did return at the very end of her career and had success with some amazing shows in the very last years of her life. But as far as the Red Scare, 1950s, her career was dead in the States. Instead, her husband at the time, French orchestra leader Joe Bouillon, this is a lot of husbands, (laughs) um, pushed her to make long tours throughout Europe and Latin America, especially Argentina, where she lived for a while. Hmm. So so then... We've heard, like you just said, <laughs> quite a few different husbands, but we haven't heard anything about her love life, about her family life. And I know this is the kind of usually the type of thing you know very well. You can give us the dirt. So what, what I was do her like family the gossip. life? I would like the gossip. Yeah. Well, her love life was fascinating, if all the gossip is at least half true. Over the years, Josephine Baker is rumored to have been linked romantically to a series of successful men, including the Belgian writer Simonon and the Swiss architect Le Corbusier. Le, Corb- <laughs> Le Corbusier. <laughs> and besides that, she inspired many others with her beauty and charm, including Hemingway, Picasso, Man Ray, Calder, and Medigliani. But beyond liaisons, real or imaginary, for Josephine, family life seems to mean kids. Lots and lots of kids. Remember I mentioned that she had an emergency hysterectomy during the war when she was in Mm -hmm. Morocco? Even though she could not bear children, she was determined to create a family. Filled with a very unique sort of idealism of creating a post-racial family, she adopted her own United Nations of a family called her Rainbow Tribe. So Baker raised two daughters, French-born Marianne and Morocco-born Stelina, and ten sons. Japanese-born Jeannot, born Teruya, and Akio, Colombia-born Luis, Finnish-born Jari, French-born Jean-Claude, Noel, and Moisey, hmm. Algerian-born Brahmin, Ivoirian-born Coffee, and Venezuelan-born Mara. Later, Baker became the legal, guardi- the legal guardian of another boy, also named Jean-Claude, and considered him an unofficial addition to the Rainbow Tribe. So 13 kids, if I'm counting correctly. So... That really sounds like a sitcom or like a reality show. <laughs> and they were all living in Paris, in an apartment in Paris? No. For a long time, Baker lived with her children at an enormous staff in a beautiful chateau in Dordogne, France. 
That Chateau de Milandes served as a kind of tourist spot in the region. It had a hotel, a farm, rides, and the children would be like something out of the sound of music, singing and dancing for the audience. Hmm. She charged admission fee to visitors who entered and partook in the activities, which actually included watching the children play. Hmm. Her goal was to not only subsidize the expenses of taking on such a huge family while giving up work in order to raise the kids. She also wanted visitors to be able to walk the grounds and see how natural and happy the Rainbow Tribe children were. But the tourism plan definitely didn't work. She went bankrupt paying for this new life, and an old friend came to the rescue. Who? Who is the friend? Her seatmate from the store club. In the late 1960s, when Josephine was evicted from Milan. Grace Kelly, now Princess Grace of Monaco, stepped in. Princess Grace tried to smooth things over with her creditors. But in May 1968, huh, a great time, May 1968, just saying, Baker's estate was foreclosed. <laughs> Anything true, else right? going on yeah. then? I don't know. Princess Grace, <laughs> Princess Grace had arranged for all of Baker's children and Baker herself to be set up in Monaco, with Princess Grace uh, setting her up in a villa. Hmm. Okay, so I get it now, and that's why... Probably Josephine Baker was buried in Monaco, right? That's true, but we're not ready to talk about the funeral just yet. <laughs> okay, so where are we going now then? Okay, this is one of my favorite things to tell everybody about. <laughs> I think it's important that we tell you all that she didn't have any reason to come back to the States. Um, but in the 1960s, she became very involved in the American Civil Rights Movement, befriending and supporting many of its leaders and the different actions to guarantee equality in the States. In fact, she spoke at the March on Washington in 1963. Wow. She was the only official female speaker for the March on Washington. She wore her French military uniform with her Legion d'honneur medal. She stood alongside Reverend Martin Luther King, and he introduced her to the crowd as the Negro Woman for Civil Rights, among them Rosa Parks and Daisy Bates, who both gave brief speeches. In her own speech, Baker said, I have walked into the palaces of kings and queens and into the houses of presidents and much more but I could not walk into a hotel in America and get a cup of coffee. And that made me mm -hmm. mad. And when I get mad, you know I open my big mouth. And then I look out, because when Josephine opens her mouth, they hear it all over the world. <laughs> I love that. That's an amazing, amazing quote. And I have to say, whenever I see that picture of her in her French military uniform at the March on Washington, I get choked up. Mm, that's great in her time. final years... Josephine finally seemed to get the kind of recognition and love that she deserved in the States. In 1973, she gave a sold-out performance at Carnegie Hall that was officially known as Josephine Baker and her International Review. According to the New York Times, it was a mixture of theatrical glamour and personal warmth, focusing on the Baker body, memories of the Baker career, the Baker philosophy of universal love. She wore some incredible Bauman gowns and some other French designers and brought the crowd to its feet when she sang her classics from before the war. Hmm. Must have been amazing. Um, so now I'm getting the sense we're coming to the end, aren't we? I mean, with all this talk about standing ovations and classic songs, Lynn, I can feel that final wrap-up arriving. Joseph went out in total glory wearing Balmain. Hmm. In April 1975, she opened a retrospective show at the Bobino in Paris entitled Josephine Bobino, which looked back at her 50 years of Parisian success. Remember, she first arrived in Paris in 1925. <laughs> 
Ravi. The review was financed by Monaco's Prince Rainier and Princess Grace, along with Jackie Kennedy Onassis, and it opened to rave reviews. All the shows were sold out, and the opening night must have been incredible. Among the stars in the audience were Sophia Loren, Mick Jagger, Shirley Bassey, Diana Ross, and Liza Minnelli. Oh, wow. Major, major 70s glam. I can't imagine. So now I, I'm looking at some of the posters and pictures from that show. And just like you say, her body at her age was pretty incredible. And and with that beaded bodysuit and that amazing feathered headdress... It's very Parisian cabaret meets Parisian haute couture. And it was it seems like the perfect way of evoking her earliest days at the Théâtre de Champs-Élysées, no? And ensuring that this story ends like the incredible cinema storyline that is the life of Josephine Baker. After that incredible success of a retrospective review at the Bobino and the amazingly glam opening. Four days later, Josephine Baker was found lying peacefully in her bed, surrounded by the Paris newspapers filled with going reviews of her performance. She had had a cerebral hemorrhage and was in a coma. She was rushed to Paris's Petit Sapetier Hospital, where she died on 12th of April, 1975. Mm. She was only 68 years old. Wow. Literally, she was a star <laughs> until the very end. I'm assuming, again, that her funeral was a major production just like her life, right? Yep. On the day of her funeral, tens of thousands lined the Parisian streets to witness the procession. Since she was both a cultural and resistance hero, the French government honored her with a 21-gun salute, making Josephine Baker the first American woman in history to receive French military honors. After the funeral, Princess Grace arranged for Josephine to be buried at the Cimetière de Monaco in Monte Carlo. Wow. So, Lynn, we're talking before about how we're going to tie this whole this whole podcast up, this episode up, and like uh, as if we needed to search more for more amazing details after all the drama associated with Josephine Baker that you just went through. But you mentioned in your last email that you knew the perfect final note for today's podcast. I do. So you started off mentioning the Balmain connection to Beyonce with Olivier partnering with her on that incredible Renaissance Couture collection. Mm-hmm. And we revisited... Beyonce's best wishes to Olivier on his 10th anniversary, where she underlined the house's connections to Josephine Baker. Exactly. Well, Beyonce clearly knows all about Josephine and her incredible history. It's not only because of the obvious, two Southern women who became global superstars, beloved everywhere, unafraid to take stands for equality and progress and making history in all parts of the world due to their incredible charisma, beauty, fashion sense, and incomparable talent. But Beyonce has also been inspired by the beauty and talent of Josephine Baker and has made references to Josephine when she performs. Oh, yeah, really? Yep. During her Fashion Rocks performance in 2006, Beyonce celebrated Baker's 100th birthday by performing her hit Deja Vu while wearing a version of Baker's iconic banana skirt. Although Beyonce, unlike Josephine, wore a top, a bedazzled (laughs) bustier. And in Beyonce's video for Naughty Girl, she dances just as Baker used to do inside a huge champagne glass. And in the I Am Yours, an intimate performance at Win Las Vegas, Beyonce listed Baker as an influence on her work. Hmm. So good. Bravo, Lynn. You actually did it. You actually tied it all together. Um, I think somehow we've managed to tie together Olivia Rustong's many years of collaborations and partnerships with Beyonce with that incredible history that Pierre Balmain and this house have had with the American global superstar of 100 years ago, Josephine Baker. So hopefully we'll soon be talking to Olivier himself about the couture collection that he partnered on with Beyonce 
and I'm sure that he would have some more data about this parallel history. And Lynn, I'm hoping we have a chance to talk again very soon because you mentioned the last time that you were in Paris that you had some interesting stories to share about some of the movie stars who were closely associated with Pierre Balmain. Among them, I think it was Sophia Loren, Marlena Dietrich, Brigitte Bardot, and even Jane Fonda. Um, so I was thinking it might be fun to have a conversation about those incredible early muses of this house as well. I would love to. And yes, there's plenty of good stories to share. The stories about Pierre Balmain and his many incredible muses remind me of what Olivier Oustin was saying in his press notes for his last collection. Oh, what? Huh? <laughs> what, what was he saying? I mean, Olivier was telling the story of how when he first started interviewing for his earliest position at Balmain, a few years before he became the house's creative director, his future colleagues kept telling him that Balmain was a sleeping giant, mm. asleep on a vast riches of forgotten designs and incredible history, and how it wasn't until he entered the house's archives and was completely blown away when he finally saw the 75 years worth of designs that he understood what they meant. Okay, and how is that connected to what we just went through? Well, Bellman has, in a way, also been sleeping on all the incredible stories of past associations with leading talents of Pierre Bellman's era. I mean, we've already talked about the connections to Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas, right? Yeah, it's true. And all those great photographers and all those aristocrats and, and, and naughty socialites that we talked about in the past podcast with you, right? Who doesn't love a naughty socialite? <laughs> and today, this long and distinctive Balmain connection with Josephine Baker. Mm. Balmain also has an incredible history of dressing the greatest stars of European cinema. He loved the theater and the movies. Remember how we talked about the fact that his parents were actors at local theaters in his home region, and Pierre Balmain loved to stage his own plays and create his own costumes as a kid. Yeah, you're right. That's right. I remember that, yeah. Well, unlike most designers of his time, Balmain was very eager to dress movie stars for their roles, and he had a long relationship with many of those stars. So great. I mean, it sounds like a perfect episode. Um, and I, I'm sure there's plenty of gossip. Uh, <laughs> so I guess we'll be calling you again soon, and very soon, I hope. Thanks again, Lynn. I know this was a very early 10 a.m. call for you, and I appreciate you working with our time zone. And I'm glad we had the chance to talk today. And thank you very much for schooling us on Josephine Baker. And I'm looking forward to talking to you again very soon. But thank you, John. It was a pleasure talking about Josephine. And maybe the next one we can do in Paris. Because, you know, I'm always trying to get back there. <laughs> I'm another American. <laughs> another honorary citizen in my own mind. You have two, you have thank two you very much, John. This was a pleasure. Thanks, Lynn. Talk to you soon. <laughs> Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Manhattan est belle, mais c'est quoi bon venir? Ce que mène en sorcelle, c'est Paris, c'est Paris tout entier. Well, thank you guys. Um, keep in touch. Thank you. This is fun. This is fun. Uh, this is scary. Okay. okay, we'll talk okay. soon about scandalous. Bye, Seb. Bye, everybody. Bisous. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye.